0: Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number one. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, Paul says. And indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And Paul says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Let's pray. Father, um, this is an incredibly important text and subject, but it is a challenging one to extract from it the truth that you want us to hear today. And I pray that you would give us spiritual ears to hear attention toward the text and the word that is spoken and hearts that would receive with grace the grace-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would convict us corporately. You would warn us corporately. You would set us aright and realign if we need realignment corporately and individually. So that we can run the race that is set before us with patience and we can make certain that we remain connected to the vine and that we not become deceived and enticed away from the simplicity of the one and only true gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for your anointing. Help me. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it, but I need your anointing and captivate the attention of everyone in this room for these next few minutes so that we can hear the word of the Lord and be changed by it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So next week, today and next Sunday, we will end our series, Sufficient 2 Corinthians. We're going to cover today chapter 11, next week chapter 12 and 13, and we will then conclude that series. And um So not only does it conclude the series, but it also brings to a conclusion Paul's second letter to the church that was in Corinth. One of the things that really happens in chapter 11, 12, and 13, is we get some real insight into how Paul had to deal with his opponents. And I've talked a lot about this, so I'm not gonna take a lot of time this morning, but Paul had some really strong opponents that were trying to undermine his ministry, his work trying to deceive people and get them on track to follow them rather than the Apostle Paul. They had leveled accusations at Paul that were untrue or twisted, and in so doing, they were putting into danger the very ministry of the church at Corinth that Paul had planted many years before. So Paul addresses some of these opponents and the way that he does that and the way that he speaks to them actually provides for us, and we'll get there in just a moment, but three principles that, that help us know how to navigate our kind of crazy culture. How many think our culture is a little out of whack right now? It's a little on the crazy side. And there, in all of the cultural issues, there is none that is probably so or more confusing and yet more beat to death than the notion of tolerance. How many have heard that word a few times in the last couple of years, tolerance? What does that look like for the believer? Paul opens 2 Corinthians 11 by saying, oh that you would bear with me in a little folly. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. The New Living Translation, Paul says, I hope that you will put up with a little more of my foolishness. The word bear or put up in the New Living Translation is the Greek word aneko, and it means to bear with, to endure with, or to tolerate. So Paul basically is saying, I hope you will tolerate me a little bit more of my foolishness. And again, we'll talk about why Paul would even say that in the first place. But now he closes this same section, verses one through four. Paul saying, I'm afraid that if somebody comes to you and they preach to you a different gospel or a different Jesus, or a, they come with a different spirit, Paul said, I am afraid that you may well Put up with them, echo, you may well tolerate them. So he opens by saying, I hope you'll tolerate me a little longer. And then he says, but I'm afraid that if they come and they preach a different gospel, you might tolerate them. So we're introduced in this chapter to this issue of tolerance that is a buzzword or big issue in our culture today. John Stott, who has not been passed very long, maybe a couple of years, really was helpful in how he described tolerance. He says this, tolerance is one of today's most coveted virtues. But there are at least three kinds of tolerance. First, there's legal tolerance, fighting for equal rights before the law of all ethnic and religious minorities. Christians should be in the forefront of this campaign. campaign. And I think all of us would agree with that. Second. There is social tolerance going out of our way to make friends with adherents of other faiths since they are God's creation who bear his image. We can never win someone to Christ if we're not willing to talk to them even if they're not of our faith. And so we need to be tolerant enough to say, I'll listen to you, you listen to me. That's how we win people to Jesus. That's what missionaries are doing. They're going to other cultures and they are saying, I'm coming into your culture, I'll hear about you, but let me share the message of Christ as well. But then there is intellectual tolerance. That is to cultivate a mind that is so broad and so open as to accommodate all views and reject none. This is where our culture is today. Everything is accepted and nothing is rejected, maybe, except biblical truth and Christianity. But for the most part, we just accept everything. So, Stott goes on to say, this is to forget G.K. Chesterton's bon mot, in the French it means good word. And Here's what Chesterton said, the purpose of opening the mind is the same as opening the mouth, and it is to shut it again on something solid. Wouldn't it be an awful thing if you went to lunch this afternoon and you had lunch with someone who kept opening their mouth and putting food in but never closed it? It would be pretty gross. They wouldn't get anything chewed up. But that's not the purpose of opening mouth. The purpose of opening our mouth is to open it to receive something and then to clench down on that and chew it. It's the same purpose for opening the mind. But to open the mind so wide as to keep nothing in it or out of it is not a virtue, but it is a vice of the feeble-minded. Our culture today is all about open-mindedness, just be open to all views, but we've opened our minds so wide and so far and never sunk in to truth, and we just let everything come in and out. Fulton Sheen is really helpful when he says tolerance applies only to persons, but never to truth. Intolerance applies only to truth, but never to persons. Tolerance applies to the erring, the one who is erring, intolerance to the error. Let let me just unpack that a little bit more. In other words, we are told, oh, you're a bigot, or you're hateful, or you're intolerant, as if we hate people if we reject a truth that they may believe. We're not rejecting them, we are rejecting what is not truth. Does that make sense to everybody? So our intolerance is toward truth and error, it is not toward a person. But Christians today must not, under the guise of tolerance, have open minds that refuse to lock in on what we believe is the truth of God's word. Say amen if you believe that. So this is really important, and this is the concern of Paul in our text today. That the Corinthians had become so open-minded and so tolerant that they were susceptible to, if not already guilty, of embracing another Jesus and another gospel and another spirit. Paul begins by asking the Corinthians to bear with him in what he calls a little bit of folly, so be tolerate, tolerant of me while I give you a little folly, he said, and Paul, listen, you're gonna have to really, this first 15 minutes, folks, how, how many will sign on to really listening close? Will you do that with me? Because this is, this text, this is one of those texts that is job security for preachers, okay? It is, because it's, it's tough, and it's one of those, I know people read through the Bible in a year, and they read this, and they, I have no idea, and they just move on. I'm going to help you have an idea, but you're going to have to listen and follow this argument. It's really powerful and makes sense. All right, Paul feels that his opponents have boasted, and they have foolishly, of their greatness and their superiority. They have, they have told the Corinthians how wonderful they are. Look what we've done, and look what we've accomplished. And in their boasting, they have made the Corinthians begin to follow them, instead of Paul, so Paul acknowledges right off the bat what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna fight fire with fire. I am gonna open myself up to self-boast. I'm gonna boast about myself and even look foolish because I am in a battle for the hearts and minds of the Corinthians. Can I just take a step backwards and say what we need in the church today is a group of people who say we are so willing to battle for the hearts and minds of young people that are being deceived, that we are even willing to look a little foolish at times because we're going to make sure they don't get sucked into this hole and end up spending eternity without Jesus. And Paul said, I am even willing to look foolish because I'm battling for the hearts and minds of the Corinthians. D.E. Garland said, If he stoops to their level by boasting, he is a fool. But if he does not defend himself, he might lose the congregation to even greater fools. Paul was not willing to lose the Corinthians to eternity, and so he took a chance and boasted he has two great concerns. The first is he's concerned for their doctrinal purity. Paul had, he said, When I planted this church, I betrothed this church to as a virgin to Christ. He was he was the bridegroom and they were the bride and I presented them, but now you're falling away from the simplicity that's in Jesus Christ. He was afraid that they were, they were starting to, to drift. And so he was concerned for doctrinal purity. Everybody look at me for just a moment. Doctrine matters. Doctrine is important. If we do not have correct doctrine, then we will not have pure commitment. Pure commitment emerges out of pure doctrine, and Paul knew that was important. If it fails or unravels, if we fudge on the truth, our commitment will fudge as well. Number one, he's concerned about their doctrinal purity. Secondly, he was concerned because they were already bearing with, tolerating dangerous teachers. Like Satan, these false teachers had disguised themselves as angels of light. They had come with new gospels, new doctrine, new spirits they were talking about, and they looked spiritual. They, they claimed the anointing. They had all the garb, and they looked like they were the real deal, but they were taking captive those who were being deceived. Now, can I again talk to you? We are in a perfect, this is a, Perfect storm today for Christians, young people, and older folks to be sucked away and drift away by that which is not true because Christians today that fill churches every Sunday are biblically illiterate. They don't know the Bible, and if something sort of sounds like the Bible, and it's said with real persuasion by somebody who seems to know what they are talking about, we just get sucked into that hole. That's why we are so intent, even if I bore you to tears on Sunday morning, to make certain that you know the Word of God. Otherwise, we can get sucked into that which is not true. Say amen if you believe that. And so it is a perfect storm for this to happen to and it's no coincidence that Paul says I'm afraid that you're going to be deceived just like Satan beguiled Eve in the garden that's not a coincidence because what did Satan say to Eve he said did God really say that Did God really say that? How in the world do people get deceived today? How is our culture being deceived? Watch every news channel, even the conservative ones. How are they undermining scripture? Do we really believe that God said that is what they say? Do you really think that's just a book written by men? That's, that's just written by man and it's been edited hundred times or a thousand times. How do we know that's true? And would a God of love really say that? Would he really disqualify people who did that? And did God really say? That's what Satan always says. And listen, look at me, for a church universal that doesn't know what God said in the first place, when the enemy says, "Did God really say?" They have no tools to respond. And that's what Paul was concerned about, and that is the concern that is real today. It takes no imagination to think of false gospels that are being peddled even today. Dr. Trevin Wax in the Gospel Coalition, or of the Gospel Coalition, lists six, and I added a seventh gospel. The first is the therapeutic gospel. That's the feel-good gospel. That's the Oprah Winfrey gospel. Just do what your heart feels. Just follow your heart. How many know I'm not an Oprah fan? All right, there you go. I'm not, and if you are, I will pray for you that the demon comes out. I'll just tell you that. It's just do what your heart feels. As long as you feel good, as long as you go for it, as long as as you're being true to yourself, that's the therapeutic gospel. There's the judgment-less gospel. Downplays the consequences of sin. God doesn't really judge. Everybody's ultimately gonna go to heaven anyway. Doesn't really matter, you know. Maybe some will get there earlier than others or maybe some will have a little better place. But ultimately God's gonna say there's no judgment, the judgmentless gospel. The moralist gospel focuses on willpower. Just try harder, work harder, do more good. Be good people. The quietest gospel, that's the gospel that downplays the gospel proclamation announcement. It leaves it to everyone individually. That's fine, Pastor Clayton, if you want to believe in Jesus, but if I want to believe in something else, that's fine, and it's fine with you. It's the quietest guy. Keep it quiet. Don't proclaim the gospel because it's just an individual choice. Fifthly, there's the activist gospel. It downplays the personal side of accepting salvation. It just rails against cultural sin, the environment and and racism and all those things that may very well be problems, but it's like if we fix that, we fix the whole thing, and the problem is... You can, uh, you can miss heaven and get the environment right and get every, every racial issue and every war and all hunger fixed but if you don't know Jesus you still don't go to heaven. Somebody say man, if you believe that. That's the activist gospel. There's the, the church-less gospel. It's fairly new but and this is not just to be self-serving. I want to warn you there is a real movement that says because of the church's imperfections, the church gathering is at best unnecessary and at worst damaging, and it has led to the house church movement where people have just done with the, what they call the institutional church. Chuck Swindoll years ago was talking about the church and comparing it to the ark, and he said the stench inside the ark would have been impossible to bear had it not been for the flood outside. And I, I will tell you, there are that the church is not perfect. No, not sometimes. All the time, the church is not perfect. But the alternative, folks, is to be a lone ranger trying to make it without the fellowship of believers. And that church-less gospel is not a biblical portrait of what God calls the church to be. Amen, Pastor Kevin. And then we can add to that the triumphant gospel. It's all about health and wealth and victory. But you can... Uh, go to heaven, or you can go to hell healthy and wealthy. If you don't know Jesus, you cannot spend eternity in heaven. All of these are counterfeit gospels that should concern us. They're all perversions. They all pull us from the simplicity of the gospel. And it's dangerous to be tolerant, to bear with these. That's what Paul's concern was. And that's why Paul says, watch this. So bear with me, Paul says, with my folly. I'm going to make a point. How many like sarcasm? Anybody in this room likes sarcasm? Because this Paul's letter here just drips with sarcasm. Some people call what Paul says here the fool's speech, but he gives us three principles, and I need to move fast this morning that will help us discern if we're being deceived and following prey to another gospel. Number one, this is the most, this is the most difficult one to, to get to follow what Paul is saying, but I'll, I'll move through it quickly. But just really listen really, really close. You'll get this. Number, number one, is the gospel, this is the question we need to ask, is the gospel shaping our cultural context and personal values or are our values and ministries being shaped by the values of culture? In other words, are we changing our culture or is our culture changing us? Paul begins by denying some things and admitting some things. And I, you're gonna to have to follow this argument. I consider, Paul said, that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am look, untrained in speech, yet I'm not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin when I humbled myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches taking wages for them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied, and in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. So Paul begins by categorically denying that he is inferior. I'm not inferior to my adversaries. But the main sticking point of his adversaries was, was that Paul wasn't all that smooth. He wasn't a great they didn't have great rhetorical skills. Remember, we talked about the sophist a few weeks ago. They loved to argue, and they were like lawyers who were the best lawyers, and they, and they could argue their point. They were always engaged. Sophist, we, the, the word Sophia, which is wisdom, these were the wise philosophers who loved their rhetoric skills. And so this was the main sticking point, that Paul didn't have those rhetoric skills that the eminent apostles had, and they were convincing in their speech, and they were drawing people away from Paul. Paul does acknowledge his lack of training in speech or in rhetoric, yet he knew the most important thing. He said, I might not have the same training, but I do know Christ. In other words, Paul said, I might not be a slick. I might not... I I may not have my rhetoric skills down, but I know who Jesus is. And by the way, the word untrained here actually does not necessarily mean he's not educated. It means that he does not make that a matter of something of which he would boast. In other words, I'm not gonna show you all the letters behind my name. He was untrained. I'm not gonna brag, Paul said, about what skill I do have. That would make sense because Paul says in Philippians 3, when he gets that long list of his pedigree, he said, but I count all of that as rubbish. I count it all as dung if I can just know Christ. It's likely that Paul simply had not assumed the role of professional speaker making the circuit, and so they were accusing him of lacking the ability to really present. Paul also acknowledges that he didn't take money for his ministry. Paul asked the question, Was it a sin when I humbled myself and did not take your money? Paul was a tent maker, and he made a living making tents. Tents were made out of leather. The Leather came from animals. It was considered an unclean thing to have touched those animals. And so his job was really looked down upon by the professional speakers of that day and the sophists who were downplaying Paul's skills. Paul considered it an act of humility, not an act of humiliation to take a job being a tent maker so that he didn't have to take money from the church. They were saying, how humiliating. Paul is saying, no, I'm humbling myself like our Savior did. I'm willing to humble myself and not take your money for the sake of the gospel. Paul went on to say, I was blessed by the Philippians. They gave me money. They provided money for me. So did some other places. And the speakers in Corinth were usually paid. And that's what really ticked the Corinthian leaders off. Who is this guy that won't take our money? Those to whom a professional speaker spoke expected pay, it was a status symbol. And those that worked with their hands were considered of lower status. So he probably ticked them off because he wouldn't take their money and he even took money from other churches. But here's the deal, everybody look at me for just a moment. Here's what's going on. The Corinthians wanted Paul to take money because they wanted to control Paul. They wanted to dominate him. There are those who are dominant people. They want to manipulate, and if if Paul would give in to them and take their money, they would want to interfere. They would want to mastermind Paul's message. If you don't believe that, read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the kind of people that were in Corinth, When they had the last supper, when they had the the communion service, they always had a meal. And guess what? The rich people brought all kinds of food, and the poor people didn't have much. And the rich wouldn't share with the poor. And these elite thought they were really something. And Paul knew that elite class, if they paid him, they would want him to answer to them rather than to Christ. And Paul, look at me, would not sell his influence to the highest bidder. He was committed to his pattern of ministry. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or chapter 11, 10, and 12. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one is going to stop me from this boasting in the regions of Caia. Why? Because because I do not love you? Sarcasm. God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are about things of which. They boast. So Paul said this I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing. I'm not going to bow to pressure. Paul said, Do you think I don't take your money because I don't love you? Is that what you think? In that culture, it could have looked like a rejection of them. But Paul says, God knows. God knows my heart. God knows that I do love you. And he insists, listen, that he will not change his methods so that he can keep a clear line between himself and those who oppose him and pervert the gospel. He will not sacrifice his standing with them and compromise his distinction. Paul's opposition was committed. They wanted to bring him down. They wanted him to compromise. They wanted him to fail. They did that because they were inspired of their leader, Satan. Paul says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder their leader, Satan, transforms himself into an angel of a light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. They were deceitful workers, and they, they disguised themselves as anointed preachers. They were teaching a false gospel a false Jesus, and they were inspired by a false spirit. They showed themselves false by opposing Paul But they act in accordance with the patterns and behaviors of their master, Satan, who masquerades as an angel of light. And Paul said this is what the false teachers are doing as well. And Paul says their fate will be destruction. Let me end this first point by showing you these things. The Corinthians were being wowed. And they were deceived by pursuing cultural values not in line with the gospel. They were wowed by performance. They were wowed by impressive speakers. They were wowed by people with money. They were wowed by the crowds that followed. They were wowed with the education. And is this not the case today? We are drawn to the latest, the greatest, the most contemporary, the most relevant, the most polished. Never mind, it's devoid of truth. We're easy suckers because we don't know truth. Paul stood for a principle that was counter-cultural and it was being rejected. Paul said, I will not sell, I will not sell to the highest bidder. I'm gonna stand on the truth of God's word. Again today, when we stand on biblical values and reject the cultural norm, we will get pushback in opposition. Paul placed biblical principle in priority over cultural values, because to fail to do so would be to surrender himself and his ministry to the Lord Jesus Christ or to, uh, get to those who were against him. Remember that tolerance applies to people but never to truth. Look at me for just a moment. Are we, are we going to allow the culture to shape our values or are we going to do everything we can to let our values in the gospel shape the culture? Let me give you the second and third point really quickly. I won't go much longer, just hold steady. Secondly, is cultural accommodation drawing us away from the foolish and weak message of the gospel? This is a challenging text. This is the epitome of sarcasm right here. Look at this. How many again like sarcasm? Let me see how many like it. You better like it right here. I again, Paul says, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool that I may also boast a little. I love this. What I speak, look at this, is not even according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast, for you put up with fools gladly, since you you yourselves are wise, for you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that, but in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Here's his argument, real quickly, just follow this. Paul acknowledges that he is going to do like his opponents. For just a short time, he's gonna act like a fool, and he's gonna boast, quote, a little. Paul said, go ahead, embrace me as a fool, temporarily, so I too can boast a while myself. And he makes it clear, this is not God's way. This is not the way the Lord would have this done. I speak not according to the Lord, This is not appropriate, Paul says, in most cases for an authentic minister. But he has been pushed to engage in an activity he would prefer to avoid. So to beat them, he decides to join them. Since you, listen, he says, it's right there in the text, since you are going to boast according to the flesh, I'm going to as well. And then he confronts them about their accommodation to the works of the enemy. He said, you put up with, and echo, you tolerate these fools. If they, and he says five things, if they bring you into bondage, you've let them. You were free in Christ, but they brought you into bondage. But because you're so impressed with them and their message, you allow yourselves to go into bondage if they devour you. If they take all your money, Paul said, I didn't take a pity from you. If they devour you and eat up your resources, you allow them. If they take from you, the Greek word is labano, if they take away or kidnap, if they take advantage of you, you let them. If they exalt themselves and show themselves to be great and strong and arrogant, you allow them. But Paul came in gentleness and in meekness. Paul said, even if they strike you on the face with the intent to destroy or harm you, even though I came to minister in love and patience, Paul said. Maintaining his sarcasm, please get this, and then I'll move to the third point. Paul says, to our shame, we are too weak for that. Just listen. I I can't go so fast that you missed the point, all right? I, I know you want to get out of here and you all tell me you don't really want to get out of here when I'm done. I know, but, but I know you, and you really want to get out of here. So let me just, let me go slow enough to get this. Paul says, I'm ashamed to say we're too weak for that. This was sarcasm. He means nothing of the sort. Paul says, if, um, if you have to devour people, if you have to boast, if you have to be arrogant, if you have to steal from people, if you have to tout who you are and exalt yourself, if you have to put other people down, Paul said, I'm too weak for that. You're right, if that's what it takes, I'm not that strong, eminent apostle. Paul says, I'm too weak to bully someone, to devour them, to exalt myself, to kidnap them. So Paul says, I guess I am weak. I guess I am the fool. What has Paul done? Paul has turned the cultural value of strength On its head. Paul is boasting about his ministry, saying my ministry's weak compared to that. It's built, however, on what the world has always called weakness and foolishness. Paul's just setting them up. Paul's saying, you're right, I don't have any of that stuff. I don't take a bunch of money. I don't dress real cool. I'm not the best speaker, not the most eloquent. I don't have the biggest entourage. I'm just kind of weak and kind of pitiful and I guess I am the fool. But you know what? The message of the cross, Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing. How many believe that to be true? But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Paul is willing to go toe-to-toe with his opponents in order to keep the church, listen, in order to keep the church tethered to the gospel of the weak cross that becomes the power of God into salvation Paul said I don't mind at all being the fool I don't mind at all being the weak guy as long as the church stays tethered to that cross which everybody laughed at the one that hung on it and said he was weak, but that weak one that hung on the cross lay in a tomb for three days and came out of the tomb and his message that looks like weakness and foolishness to the world is still the power of God unto salvation. Does that make sense? So Paul said, I'm gladly the fool here. I'm gladly the weak one. He will go toe-to-toe with his opponents to keep the church tethered to the gospel. Can I just tell you, the world wants us to compromise the truth, to be tolerant of the message of strength and power, the most bells and whistles, domination, but that's another gospel besides the cross. We don't win people by our strength or our rhetoric skills or our facilities or our creativity we win people the same way people have always been won, and that is through the weakness of the cross and the foolishness of God's wisdom and we must not be willing to accommodate the world and their values and give up the power of the cross somebody say amen if you believe that and stand with me I'll give you the third point real quickly you've been very patient number three is the culture of comfort and ease blinding us to the cost of the gospel. Here Paul continues with his fool speech and his boasting, still sarcastic, and now he speaks about identity. Just follow this real quickly. So he's talking about his opponents. He said, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? Me too. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? Paul says, I'm going to sound foolish here, but I am more. These are claims that the false teachers had made. We are good Hebrew stock. We're good Israelites. We come from Abraham's seed. Paul said, "Check." Check, check, so do I. But the big one is we are the true ministers of Christ. Look at us. Look at our rhetoric skills. Look at, look at how flashy we are. Look at our programs. Look at how we have all our ducks in order. We are the ministers of Christ. Paul said, I speak as a fool. It's almost like Paul said, I can't believe I'm saying this. But I am more of a minister of Christ. Now, he gives some uh, context to that. It's a little uncomfortable for him to say, I'm more of a minister of Christ. But here's the context for that. He goes on to describe his hardships and his dangers that he faced. He said, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. The maximum was 40. You would get stripes that would be that which would meet your crime. He got five times one less than the max. Was beaten with rods three times. Was stoned shipwrecked three times. I was a night and a day in the deep in journeys, perils, of water, robbers, countrymen, Gentiles, perils in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea, among false brethren and weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often and hunger and thirst and fastings, often and cold and nakedness. Ministry, please look at me, took quite a toll on Paul. Cross-cultural ministry, always opposed by the Jews, grueling travel, troubled churches, violent resistance, all led to a life of trial and struggle. Five times beaten, one less than the max. Beaten with rods, pummeled with stones, shipwrecked. Ongoing daily trials. Weariness, sleeplessness, food deprivation. And after all that, you know what his greatest concern was? It was for the church. Look at what he says. Besides those other things that come upon me daily, the beatings, the rods, the stonings, My deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to stumble and I don't burn with indignation? Let me just tell you I I hope that I even can be one one hundredth of the pastor Paul was. Paul is saying all that other stuff, that was rough. But what really concerns me is the Corinthian church that he is willing to be a fool for. And he said, Which one of you is weak? Which one of you stumbles into sin that I don't burn with indignation for the enemy that has stolen you away and caused you to drift? Paul said, I'll take the rods and I'll take the stoning. I just don't want you to stumble. I don't want you to be lost. That's why he was willing to be a fool. My greatest burden, Paul said, is my care for you. That's why I'm going to these lengths to protect you from deceits." I'm going to skip that next screen. Sharon, here's how I want to close. The gospel cost us something, and yet the world is telling us we can live in ease and comfort without any cost. The text before us today calls us to consider tolerance. What is godly tolerance? What is worldly tolerance? Let me just share with you four things. Our values must shape our culture. Cultural values must not shape us. Number two, the message of the cross is one of weakness and folly in the world's eyes. Number three, we must not accommodate the gospel to the cultural values of power and worldly wisdom, or we will gut its redemptive purpose. If we make the gospel, we're going to be the coolest church, and the wisest church, and the fanciest church, and the best rhetoric, we'll gut it of its truth. Its truth is the weakness of the cross is what saves people. Number four, we must not downplay, deny, dishonor, seek to eliminate the truth that to follow Jesus and take up our cross is to be willing to embrace the cost. Quick story, and I'm done. Colin Smith, pastor of Arlington Heights Evangelical Free Church. He said, I have vivid memories as a kid of my father taking me to an auction. He told me two things. Number one, don't scratch your nose at the wrong time, son, right? That's good instruction. And he also said, remember this, whenever you go to an auction sale, make sure you know your upper limit price. Colin Smith said, that's been ingrained in me. Know how much you're willing to pay before you go. But the great danger for us is that we walk in this Christian life walk it out clearly knowing our upper price. But Jesus doesn't allow us to set that. Jesus said if you save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, you will keep it. Our calling is to a life of unconditional obedience where the price is unknown. I don't know what you'll ask of me, God. But I'm going to follow you. And I'll be weak and foolish and broken if necessary. But I'm not going to compromise the gospel. Father, thank you for your word today. Lord, I preach fast and I covered probably way too much material. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would touch our hearts in this culture that screams to us that to be relevant we have to tolerate everything. Help us to be strong enough to be intolerant to that which is not true. We're not intolerant of people. We love people. But we will only embrace the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and will not tolerate, will not echo will not bear with that which is untrue in our church or in our individual lives. We will walk the walk that says, Lord, I'm laying down my life. I'm not setting an upper limit on the cost, whatever you ask of me. I'll give it to you. I'm yours. I want to spend eternity with you and I want to serve you well here. So I give you my life initially. Obedience to the call that you placed on me, I pray. With your head still bowed for just a moment, is there anyone in this room that would say, Pastor Kevin, I am not serving Jesus today. My heart is not right with God. But I want, before I leave today, I want to know that I'm right to them. I want to make sure he's the Lord of my life. Would you pray for me? Anyone in this room would say, Jesus, the Lord of my life. Anyone in this place? And I ask a second question, head still bowed. How many would say, Pastor Kevin, I want to live my life uncompromising. Listen, hear me out. I want my life's values and the gospel to shape the context and the culture in which I live. I don't want to be shaped by it. I don't want to let go of the weakness of the cross as the power of God in and salvation. And I'm willing to walk in unbelief